we started seeing these trends where HPC and HPC-like workloads are starting to become more and more popular outside of just traditional HPC centers. They're not hobbyists. They're not looking for the latest and greatest. They're not looking for what's the most fun. They want everything to be as consistent and stable as absolutely possible. And that's exactly what happened. SUSE, Oracle, and CIQ started talking. And we're all trying to solve the same sort of problem. From Orion X, in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, everybody, and hi, Shaheen. Great to be with you again. Hello. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Yeah. We're talking with Greg Kurtzer about the Linux open source controversy. This was all kicked off a little less than two months ago when Red Hat announced it was changing access to Red Hat Enterprise Linux source code. And this has really thrown the open source community into a major disruption. So Greg Kurtzer is the founder and chief executive officer of CIQ. He's a 20 plus year veteran in Linux, open source, and HPC. His focus has been on designing scalable architectures for performance intensive computing while working for the U.S. Department of Energy and holding a joint appointment to UC Berkeley. Greg has led several large open source projects such as CentOS Linux, the Werewolf and Perseus cluster toolkits, the container system Aptainer, and the successor to CentOS Rocky Linux. Greg, really happy to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so let's just start with just set the landscape here. UNCIQ, of course, are well known in the industry, but please give us a quick description of the mission of CIQ and kind of update us on how the company is doing. Yeah, absolutely. So CIQ started really from the perspective of high-performance computing. That's been a lot of my background, as you mentioned, and we started to see some interesting trends. After creating a container system, originally Singularity, and we moved it into the Linux Foundation, it's now called Aptainer. After kind of crossing the barrier from high-performance computing and enterprise via this container system, we started seeing these trends where HPC and HPC-like workloads are starting to become more and more popular outside of just traditional HPC centers like enterprises and clouds and whatnot. And this, this first became absolutely apparent to me when I got approached by one of the largest social media companies out there who said, we're going to be the biggest HPC system in the world. But the HPC architecture that we've been using is, is a little bit dated and not compatible with a lot of kind of the enterprise ways of building systems. And so that was how CIQ was formed. Let's take HPC out of kind of the 30-year-old, you know, Beowulf design and start making it more cloud native and API based and whatnot. And then see if we can even get it federated, you know, across different geographies and borders and clouds and whatnot. And let's link it all together into one giant system. That was what we, we formed CIQ to do. And in doing that, we realized that yeah, we're probably also going to be doing support for base operating system, for containers and everything else. So we were already starting to scale up our support group for base operating system when Red Hat End of Life CentOS. I came forth and I said, you know, due to my legacy and my background with CentOS, I felt as though I might, you know, have some good perspectives and might be able to help with kind of recreating CentOS. And I wanted to recreate it because by end of lifing it, it 
created a giant pain point for everybody in the community. Uh, that affected us, affected our customers, affected everyone. So I mentioned on the the blog that, you know, where CentOS was end of life, that we're going to go ahead and recreate it. And anybody wants to join me, you know, you're welcome to join. Uh, within about a month, month and a half, we had over 10,000 people join. <laughs> that mm-hmm. was one heck of a management challenge to, mm-hmm. to try to figure out how to organize 10,000 people. Of course, you can't, at least I can't. Uh, so the team ended up being quite a bit smaller than that in terms of the core team and whatnot, but a huge amount of community support. And almost overnight, we started seeing organizations asking CIQ for for help. And we could talk a little bit about you know what we're doing specifically, maybe a little bit later, or if, if you're curious. But we we said, okay, well, we'll help. And um, next thing we know, we're kind of a, you know in the Linux distribution business as well as building an entire computing platform. And so the scope of what we were focused on just kind of immediately just got a lot bigger. <laughs> we've been we've been mm-hmm. running as fast as we can ever since. So it's really important that you're doing a lot more than just the base operating system. There's a tall stack of software on top of that. Yeah. That, that is the real business, right? So yes, in a nutshell, yes. And in addition to that, we've also learned a lot about what customers and, and the community needs around the base operating system. And, and so we've been kind of helping and coming on point to drive a lot of additional solutions. So even more than a computing platform, we have a, you can almost think of it like a artifact registry for operating system components and solution stacks called Mountain, where it allows you to, to basically just go and sign into it and then say, ah, oh, well, I want a Kubernetes stack, click here. I want an HPC stack, click here. I want a real-time kernel, click here. And you can subscribe systems to different capabilities within Mountain. And then people said, well, we need a way of automating that, you know, at a large scale in a fleet. So we created a sender and a sender leverages uh, things like Ansible to properly manage and configure fleets of systems and coordinate all of that together in a, in a single location. So Mountain, Ascender, and other things that we've been building as well, really just listening to customers and, and the community saying, here's their pain points. And as a startup, you hear the word pain point or you look for those pain points. And if you can solve them, you're creating a nice product market fit. And so that's kind of what we've been doing is really just listening. If there's anything novel, really, that we did, it's, it's we just listen. <laughs> <laughs> so Greg, you're the creator of CentOS and also of Rocky Linux. For, for our listeners who don't know, how did it come about that Red Hat Enterprise Linux, R-H-E-L, is the standard bearer of Linux open source? And also, if you could include in your answer, how many users are there currently of Rocky Linux? Gotcha. So first, I want to mention I'm not the only founder. There's a, there's a number of people that were associated with early CentOS, for example. I was the primary person kicking off Rocky Linux, but there's a whole team as well that's that made Rocky Linux possible. So I just want to make sure that you know I'm giving credit where the credit is is absolutely necessary, and and thanking all of those individuals. Okay. So you asked you asked a really interesting question, which which to me is really about standards. And why is it that all of a sudden we kind of have this giant standard called Enterprise Linux? And I believe it actually has to do with CentOS. And I believe CentOS is actually the cause of the standard. Of course, RHEL is absolutely very closely tied to that of CentOS as being, you know, bluntly the source of, of what CentOS always was. But for the most part, if you look at organizations that had very large you know, install bases, you know, what were they running? For the most part, I think it's fairly safe to say that 
most of these organizations were running two operating systems. They were running RHEL on a certain percentage, usually a smaller percentage, anywhere from five to about 15% is in the numbers that I've heard of, of an organization's infrastructure is running RHEL. And for the most part, the rest of it was running CentOS. And it was because of that, that all of a sudden kind of CentOS and RHEL started to become this, this standard. And it was it was used widely. The last numbers that I've heard in terms of CentOS market share and adoption was at the time when Red Hat end-of-life CentOS. And it was about 20 to 25% of all enterprise resources worldwide, computing resources worldwide, was running CentOS. And about 1.8% was running RHEL. So if you if you look at that, to me what that says is CentOS was really the driver of the standard of what we've come to know as enterprise Linux. But don't discount, of course, RHEL and RHEL's involvement in that as being kind of the source for CentOS. But I think it's super important to really just you know make sure that we're talking about the standard that I think everybody was was really leveraging and using worldwide was CentOS first and foremost. And that really describes the necessity for a freely available open source Linux distribution kind of focused mm-hmm. on enterprises. And if you put it behind a paywall, you're immediately going to stunt the growth and you're going to basically make hardships to all of those enterprise organizations that need to rely on this. But for whatever reason, they're not going to pay for the entire infrastructure to be supported, at least not with, obviously, I don't mean this as an undercut, but not the way Red Hat was doing it, right? Because that was what we saw. That's what people were doing. So the standard really came about because of this relationship that there was an enterprise supported operating system and then there was a freely available variant. And uh, when that freely available variant went away, the comments that I got from a lot of these enterprises were, well, we now need to reconsider our entire strategy. And that means we may actually have to even get rid of Red Hat and focus on something like Ubuntu. And most of the organizations that I spoke with immediately had a knee-jerk reaction of Red Hat just killed off CentOS. We do, we're do we running RHEL, and we were running CentOS as well, but because they killed off CentOS, they don't want to have a bisected environment. They wanted something completely compatible across the board. So they're looking now at other solutions. Because Rocky quickly came to be, it actually and I don't mean to sound dramatic about this, but it actually kind of saved everything within the enterprise Linux community. And I don't mean to say it's just Rocky either. I think Alma had a great role in this as well. Oracle did, of course. Oracle's always been present as a uh, a fantastic solution as well. But as a result of this, right, these organizations who are now planning on dropping everything and going to either Ubuntu or Debian or, or SLES, now all of a sudden, We're like, wait a second. Okay, we got stability again. We can continue doing what we were doing and don't have to completely upset our entire infrastructure. So there's this relationship is so critically important. And it's a shame that Red Hat you know, has has stated that they don't see the value in downstream derivatives, especially ones that are bug for bug compatible. The one thing I'll really say to that is they may not see the value, but their customers sure do. And that created a major pain point for their customers. And if they really, truly understood their customers really well, they probably would have taken a different tactic there. So if you don't mind, I may rewind us a little bit. Maybe everybody knows this, but it really would help me to get your perspective on just the landscape as it relates to really from the kernel out to what might constitute a Linux distribution. The various source trees, the you know where it comes from, Project Fedora, where does Red Hat gets its component tree from? What is that? I mean, you mentioned Alma, Oracle, 
Debian, Ubuntu. So for the average punter out there, it's already pretty complex. And, and, and we're saying that, the, and this was supposed to be like the unifying thing in, in the world, right? So we've made progress. Instead of having a dozen completely different operating systems, now we have a dozen pretty similar operating systems. So one aspect of the question is that, are we talking about a first world problem where fundamentally everything is the same? What's the big deal? And so where is that friction coming from that requires people to be bit-for-bit compatible, buck-for-buck compatible. And then two, what about all these other distributions that are out there? What niches are they covered? How do you, how do you see that entire landscape? Oh my goodness. That's a, that's a big question. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. <laughs> but, I, but, I'm, but I'm happy to take a stab at it. So when anybody's going to create a new operating system based on Linux, they usually start with the kernel. They'll start with some sort of bootstrap environment, and then they'll start basically building packages on top of that kernel. So you have a kernel space, which is Linux, and then everything else on top of that kernel space is in user space. And user space is built up of thousands of separate upstream open source projects. So Red Hat, for example, in the early days, Red Hat would download the kernel, they would download all these upstream projects and then package them up in a way that they all work together. And that would be your operating system. You know, put an installer on it and put some utilities on it to help with management, et cetera. And and this is your operating system. So what we're doing now is fairly similar to that, but everything has grown. So we've got thousands of packages in the operating system. And in each one of those separate packages, they're all being maintained upstream. And upstream from Red Hat, you could have thousands of developers and contributors in each one of those separate open source projects, which means you could have hundreds of thousands of individual contributors that are actually building all of the packages and components, which is in Red Hat, for example, RHEL. You're getting exactly the same thing for Debian and for Ubuntu and for SLES, for SUSE. All these different Linux distributions are basically doing the same thing, but they're doing it different. And because they do it different, they put things in different locations. So files can be in different locations. They could be using different versions of libraries, different mixtures of libraries, you know, compiled against different binaries. And then you end up with incompatibilities as a result of that. And so because we have so many different variants and choices within Linux, which is A, that's fantastic because you've got a Linux for pretty much everything from a HPC system to a cell phone Mm. or an infotainment system in a car, right? You you've got all these different use cases for it and all these different Linux distributions that can meet that need. But when you're talking about, let's say, for example, the enterprise use case, there's a very wide amount of use cases associated with just quote unquote enterprise Linux. And above that, I mean, could be high performance computing, could be cloud, could be containers, could be microservices, could be kind of traditional monolithic services. But there's a lot of things that everybody kind of needs in an enterprise environment, things like stability, things like reproducibility, things like standards, compliance, security, Mm -hmm. et cetera. I think I said security twice because I really like security. (laughs) (laughs) But that's kind of the, the high level of why there's incompatibilities and whatnot. Now, I think this to kind of address the second part of your question was, is really, again, for me about standards. I think it's super important for organizations and applications and infrastructures to know that they have some amount of standardization. So they're not going to get hit with these incompatibilities in 
odd and unique ways, whether that's running a particular application, whether that's running a particular infrastructure or solution stack, or whether that's running on a particular piece of hardware or peripheral. They need to know that once they validated that operating system, it's going to continue working. And most people that run these systems right? They're not hobbyists. They're not looking for the latest and greatest. They're not looking for what's the most fun. They're looking for what is the most boring. They want no change. They want everything to be as consistent and stable as absolutely possible. And this is why enterprise Linux as a whole always seems like it's kind of a little bit long in the tooth. As a matter of fact, you know, we're getting towards the end of life for EL7 and it's been 10 years or just about 10 years now. And there's a lot of organizations out there that are like, we're not ready to move. Right. Um, We'd like to have this for another five plus years if possible. It's a very different kind of environment and that is specific for enterprises versus again, hobbyists or desktop use or other types of use. Like Again, super stable is what they're looking for. And I'm not positive I answered all of your questions there. So if I didn't, let me know and we'll go back. No, that was brilliant. So you're saying that the different operating systems and the different use cases move at different paces depending on what the user wants. Mm -hmm. And the enterprise wants the slow, steady, it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of a thing. And then the combination of CentOS and then Rocky plus Red Hat gave people the opportunity to have the cake and eat it too. Yes. Am I understanding that correctly? You absolutely are. The one thing I want to go back and reiterate is the importance of standards. Understanding how even small and minute changes within the operating system stack could potentially cause incompatibilities. Organizations really are asking for bug to bug compatible. So Greg, again, to step back just a moment, tell us what happened here from your perspective. What has Red Hat done and why is this important for the HPC community and the, and the industry as a whole? Yeah. So if you kind of look back through history a little bit, right? So Red Hat Linux used to exist before Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and it was freely available. And most organizations in the late 90s and early 2000s were leveraging Red Hat Linux. Like that was the standard enterprise operating system. Red Hat end of life that. And they end of lifed it because they really wanted to drive business to Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which was a paid licensable product. That's when CentOS came out, was when Red Hat end of life Red Hat Linux. Fast forwarding to December of 2000, Red Hat end of life CentOS. Of course, after acquiring CentOS in 2014, but in 2020, they end of life CentOS. And again, we kind of ended up in the exact same situation. The operating system community was, was disrupted. And everybody that was leveraging CentOS now needed to figure out where do they need to go. Now, Rocky came out as a result. So did Alma. And again, enterprise Linux was now stable. Fast forward again. And just recently, Red Hat made another announcement. And that announcement is that they are holding back the sources from the open source community. Now, there's, there's lots of ways that now I've heard Red Hat describe this, but just pragmatically what this means is that you don't get the sources unless you are a customer. And in addition to that, if you are a customer, you have agreed to Red Hat's customer agreements, which basically says you will not redistribute your open source software, mm. which now kind of puts everyone in this weird spot. Like we, we might've been able to just say, well, let's just go be Red Hat customers, but I'm not going to sign away my rights to say, I'm not going to be able to distribute open source software in which those licenses have permitted me to do that. And by the way, they're not trying to override the GPL. They actually say that you can, you can freely distribute anything you want, but if you do, you're in violation of our customer contract and thus you will no longer be a customer. 
So the legality of all of this needs to be decided by somebody who's way smarter than me, (laughs) because this is a weird thing to kind of unroll. But I can say it's definitely not in the spirit of open source. And the community's backlash to that was kind of, was bad, as you can imagine, right? Red Hat Enterprise Linux is mostly comprised of source code that they didn't write and they don't own. But now they're kind of holding it hostage in this weird way. So the community, you know, tried to then figure out what to do. The goal of this or the point of this, as we understand, I'm not privy to Red Hat's private conversation, so I can't say definitively, but as I understand, the goal was to disrupt the, and I'm going to put air quotes around this, the freeloaders. And the freeloaders are those who are leveraging the Red Hat source code, building a derivative that may or may not be compatible with Red Hat, but building a derivative and then having enterprises using those derivatives and not quote unquote paying Red Hat. So that was kind of this idea of of freeloaders that somehow got out. I actually don't know even how it got out, but it was absolutely attributed to to Red Hat. And I believe, you know, somebody at Red Hat even even announced that, oh, sorry, no, we don't mean that that's the, the rebuilders. Sorry, we're talking about our customers that don't pay us for the full amount or for the full infrastructure or or whatnot. It's like, oh yeah, that makes it way better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, but that was that was kind of the gist of all of this. So that's kind of what happened. Rocky Linux decided, you know what? We're going to stay true to form. We're going to do exactly what we said we're going to do. We're not going to deviate at all. So we're going to continue focusing on being bug for bug, one-to-one compatible. Alma Linux announced that they're going to go in a slightly different direction. They're going to be as close to ABI and API compatible as absolutely possible, but they're going to have, you know, slight deviations and they're going to go in a slightly different direction. So their their updates may come from a different location or their, you know, it may diverge over time a little bit. Don't know how much yet, right? We we have to wait and see for that. But Rocky decided to stay absolutely true to form and and true to exactly what we said. What we didn't want to do is change anything mid-cycle of a release, meaning people are already running Rocky 8 and Rocky 9 in professional environments where their job depends on it. The last thing they want to have to be thinking about is, oh no, something just changed mid-life cycle. Like, I didn't have a choice in this. So we wanted to be sure that we are doing a service to all of our end users and staying as consistent as absolutely possible. So we investigated, how do we continue to do this? And we found several different ways to ensure that, you know, Rocky Linux will continue exactly as it has no changes whatsoever to our user base, none. So Rocky Linux is completely stable and we have confidence in that. We, we don't see any disruption, but at the same time, this also started to make something else clear. And this is something that we we see in open source time and time again. When there is a hardship placed upon the open source community, the open source community is empowered to come together in ways that in many cases people never would have expected. And that's exactly what happened. SUSE, Oracle, and CIQ started talking. And we're all trying to solve the same sort of problem. Mm. That's basically where we said, how do we leverage each other? How do we build a community around us and around other organizations who want to come and join us? And how do we do this in a way that's going to guarantee the longevity and stability of enterprise Linux? And this helps everybody. 
This helps us. This helps the community. This even helps Red Hat, even if they don't see it. Trust me, it does. Their customers have made this abundantly clear. This helps everybody. And what we're doing is we're creating a single source for everyone to collaborate on the source code of Enterprise Linux. Now, everybody can now decide where do we get the source from? Are we going to get the source from, from Red Hat, from cloud, from containers? Or are we going to get the source from OpenELA? which is the Open Enterprise Linux Association. And we now have this choice and it guarantees this level of stability in a way that honestly, we haven't had before for Enterprise Linux. We have had it for Debian, but not for Enterprise Linux. And that's why this is so super exciting in terms of what it is we're doing. And we're very optimistic that other organizations are gonna come and they're gonna join. And I give an open invitation to Red Hat. Please, we would love it if you join and be part of this. And what source tree are you starting with, with OpenELA? So I'm gonna go back a little bit to the definition of enterprise Linux. Uh-huh. And because this is, this is super important. It's even in the name. <laughs> so <laughs> Enterprise Linux is a pseudo standard and it has been based upon what I was mentioning earlier about CentOS versus versus Red Hat and this kind of this, this integration between the two. And because of that, we now have this Enterprise Linux pseudo standard. And I say it's a pseudo standard because it's not really documented anywhere. It's not a community standard. It's just we've got this implementation out there and we're trying to be as compatible with that implementation because that's what the user community and the other vendors in the industry, et cetera, are all looking for. They're looking for that stability of a, of a standard. They're looking to know that if it runs on one, it'll run on them all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's super important. So enterprise Linux is a pseudo standard. And today that pseudo standard is based on RHEL. So today OpenELA is starting with RHEL compatibility. What's going to happen in versions to come is going to be a very interesting, very interesting to see. But what I can tell you is if Red Hat does not want to be the source of this standard and the community wants to go in a different direction, then I think between, at least between our three organizations, plus the open source community and other organizations that come and join this, hopefully Alma comes and join this as well as others, we're going to be able to now coin an appropriate standard moving forward. And for the users and the vendors out there, if this deviates from Red Hat, it will be a pain point. They don't want pain points, but they also don't want to be held hostage that Red Hat or any other company can do something negatively to affect their business and what they're doing. And in many personal cases, their jobs, they want to know that there's stability. And, and that's our goal. Again, I'd love if Red Hat joins OpenELA to really help guarantee that level of stability for everybody who's using enterprise Linux. Right. But if I'm a customer and I'm already doing whatever I'm doing, this seems like a fork to me. So it's really a question of how I will upgrade from here on out. Isn't that true? So there will be no forking for existing versions. We are completely committed to the direction that that we've already gone down. So Enterprise Linux 7, 8, and 9, they're going to stay exactly as they are. We're going to provide all of the updates, maintenance, and whatnot to keep those stable, secure, etc. Those yeah. are staying exactly as they are for later versions, 10, 11, 12, honestly, don't know what the future is going to hold. Mm -hmm. And Red Hat does have additional shots that they can fire. Not all of the source code in RHEL is copy left. And to be specific, mm -hmm. that copy left requires them to release those sources. More permissive licenses would not require them to release those sources. So Red Hat could choose to not 
release all of the source code and just focus and just stick to the copy left or the GPL based licensing and whatnot. And if that happens now, all of a sudden, what we have to do at OpenELA is we now have to go and recreate those sources and rebuild those sources and ensure again to the community that this is going to be stable and we're going to have this solution. But nobody in the community wants to know that Red Hat can do something that can disrupt everybody across the board. So OpenELA has been formed to ensure that we always have the necessary source code publicly available to maintain this compatibility. So again, I would not call it a fork. Maybe in the future, again, who knows what happens if, you know, Red Hat forces forces our hand to fork. But right now, our focus is on compatibility and standards. So Greg, OpenELA announced last week, very big news. What sort of a reception has the announcement generated so far? What's the reception been? But also, are more companies joining the association? So the reception has been fantastic. Huge amount of media press, people talking about this. And 99% of it has all been incredibly positive, especially from the large organizations and federal entities that we've been speaking with. They're very, very happy with the direction that this is going. And again, focusing on creating that level of stability and making sure that everybody knows that the sources are always going to be publicly available. They're open source, and this is fantastic for the community. And we're encouraging downstream derivatives, right? Whether we stick to the current enterprise Linux or RHEL standard, or we end up going in a different direction, we all want more downstream derivatives that are completely compatible with this standard. So it's been fantastic. A lot of, lot of great backing and support from the open source community. Now, your second part of your question about company support and others joining, we've definitely had a lot of conversations with people. At this stage, the organization is still very young and we are still, still basically just up and coming at this point. But we've had a lot of people join the Slack. We've had a lot of people join and communicate to us that they want to be part of this. And a lot of both companies as well as individual contributors have also joined. So super excited about where this is going. And I really believe that this is going to completely change the landscape of enterprise Linux in a way that's going to create stability and resilience for everybody who's within this community. Now, let me ask this left field kind of a question. And this came up with Joe as well a couple of few weeks ago. And that's, you're building such a tall stack of software, federated computing, all this kind of, a, you know, multi-campus the future of HPC, et cetera. And then we come all the way back down to the kernel and the operating system. So there are folks who think that the OS really isn't like, it's not, doesn't matter anymore, that the action is all in containers and higher levels of the stack. And that maybe this is like a reminder to people that maybe they should pay less attention to this. How critical is this in the whole scheme of things? So I would actually take it from the opposite direction, which is operating system is always going to be critically important as we always need a way of managing the software stack on top of hardware. Mm -hmm. So Operating system is always going to be a thing, but you're exactly right in terms of application compatibility and and other facets. We're moving towards containers. We've already you know kind of moved through VMs at this point, but with containers, with microservices, with orchestration, etc., and even as we're thinking through high performance computing and the next generation of HPC, again, kind of really focusing on containers. But what is the base of that container? It's an operating system. It's the mm-hmm. user space portion of the operating system. Doesn't include the kernel, but it includes many facets of the user space. And again, the operating system and the role of the operating system is 
morphing a little bit to the point where, yes, it's still running bare metal hardware and virtual machine hardware, but at the same time, it's also now the basis of what we're leveraging inside of containers. So instead of running just, and we started started to see this with virtual machines, but with containers and microservices, we're seeing this even more now where instead of just running one operating system on a piece of hardware, you can actually be running hundreds. And so Rocky Linux, as an example, could be run hundreds of times on a single bare metal piece of hardware. So I think that the operating system is still important, but I'd actually say it's even more important than it was back then before the advent of containers. So Greg, looking at your OpenELA announcement last week, you talked about things coming up later this year. Could you talk a little bit in terms of timeline for the association? Absolutely. So we announced the formation of our initiative, not the fact that we've actually have this done. <laughs> so we have a lot of work ahead of us and we're already in technical discussions and in understanding exactly not only what it is that we're going to be providing now, but how we're going to be providing it. And it's really focused on the source code of Enterprise Linux. A common question we do get, just as a quick tangent, is are we going to be releasing binaries? And the answer to that is no. It really is focused on the source code of Enterprise Linux. And that source code, we are hoping to even be quite a bit sooner than this, but we didn't want to be too aggressive on this. But by end of year, we will definitely have you know the Git repositories done, the packages being available. And we're hoping that Rocky, that Oracle, that SUSE Liberty Linux, which is their rebuild, Alma and others will all have this ability to now go get their sources from OpenELA. And to be clear, they don't have to. That's actually not even the critical point here. The critical point is that we have alternative sources for everything that we're doing. Rocky, Alma, Oracle, the, everybody can continue doing it exactly as they're doing right now if they want to. This just gives more credibility and more stability to just the fact that, well, now we actually can go multiple places for this. And, and so we now have this plan B if you want, but I am aware that multiple organizations are actually going to be using this as plan A, which is also fantastic. Uh, in either case, this just enables downstreams to be able to easily and legally <laughs> without having to jump through any hoops pull all of the open source code necessary to create enterprise Linux and move forward. And again, before end of year for sure, and we're hoping to do much better than that. What are the cloud customers saying about all of this? And I know you work with several of them as well. The cloud customers, as well as the, the service providers, generally, I don't want to speak for them, but from what right, I've heard yeah. from, from talking with people is you know the, the operating system is just something that's needed right it's it's not really a value add it's not really but but it's just needed right you you mm. need to have something running that base operating system as well as running those containers so it's required it's needed they don't like instability they want right. to just know that this this building block that everybody requires is just stable it's going to just continue to exist and there's no drama going on with this kind of foundational building block. And as long as that's the case, they're happy because they could just continue doing business. But if all of a sudden, you know, something comes up and, and their customer base now is nervous about the, like, they want to go solve that problem. Right. On. Greg, that was fascinating. Thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. And, Absolutely. Uh, as Shaheen has mentioned, we plan to continue to examine this issue, discuss things as they unfold. So we'd be real happy to have you back on at some point. I'd love that. 
thank you so much. And also about all the other software that you're building, because that's really where a lot of the juicy stuff is in my view. So. Oh, I think we'll have a lot of fun things to talk about on the HPC side as well. Indeed. I look forward to that. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening.